This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. Again, thank you for coming out. I'm going to jump in, and I am recording. All right, so Lord, teach us to pray. These were the words that the disciples brought to Jesus after seeing him pray. Uh, Prayer is a global, nearly universal human phenomenon, but it is still something that we have to learn, still something that we can grow in. And it's always helpful to learn something from someone else who's been doing it for a little bit longer, to learn prayer perhaps from fellow prayers. And I'll speak just for myself Any long-term growth in my prayer life has nearly always meant paying attention to others who pray, both alive and those who are dead, and then putting in some effort uh, into making changes into my own life, putting some effort into these uh, practices that others do. So uh, an author, uh, and he's the leader of uh, the 24-7 prayer movement, a guy named Peter Gregg, or Grieg, wrote this little book um, called How to Pray, A Simple Guide for Normal People. And in this book that I really enjoyed and commend, he writes, you cannot grow in prayer without some measure of effort and discomfort, self-discipline and self-denial. Just as you can't get physically fit without regular exercise and a healthy diet, so your spiritual growth will be determined to a very significant extent by the prayer exercises you choose or do not choose to establish and sustain. So sometimes Christians, Protestants in particular, get a little uncomfortable with the idea of putting some exercise or some effort into our life with God, as though that somehow maybe nullifies God's grace towards us. And I want to be clear, putting in effort, effort and earning are not the same thing. Putting effort into our life with God doesn't necessarily obligate God to do more for us. It doesn't make us better people necessarily or somehow put God in our debt. Effort is not a denial of grace. It's the proper response to the grace of God, which is already always at work in our lives and enabling us to put this effort in. And I'll revisit that a little bit later in the talk, but conflating or mistaking effort and earning causes a lot of trouble in our life with God. But all this to say, desiring to grow in prayer, willing to put some effort in, but not really maybe necessarily knowing where to begin, is never a sign of spiritual of failure. In fact, it's where a good theology of prayer always begins. As Paul says in his letter to the Romans, we just don't know how to pray as we ought. So, in light of some of these things, I want to offer a series of talks, of which this is the first one, uh, on learning how to pray. Learning from some significant prayers, 
people who prayed uh, in, in church history. I want to consider them in their historical context. I want to consider their theology and consider their practice. And looking, looking to Christians of the past, people who are remarkably different than we are, but are surprisingly similar at the same time, my hope is, in the words of Auden, and more recently, Alan Jacobs, I want to break bread with the dead. This is the title of Alan Jacobs, who is an author and kind of a culture critic. Uh, it's his most title of his most recent book, and it comes from an Auden poem. And he challenges in this book contemporary people to read the great works of the past. Uh, and not in spite of, but because of their great cultural difference from us. He has this lovely image of, this is a quote from him, sitting at table with our ancestors and learning to know them in their difference from as well as their likeness to us. To engage with otherness without eliminating their otherness. And this imaginative participation with our past, this breaking bread with the dead through reading and respecting the insights of our ancestors, doesn't entail that we buy what they say wholesale. Uh, I didn't intend for that to rhyme, but as I said it out loud for the first time, I realized it rhymed and just felt a little silly. Um, uh, but it's a way that we can increase in what Jacobs thinks we desperately need in this moment. And it's this this term he uses in the book called personal density. Personal density. I like this. It has connotations of depth and of character, adding some heft to our humanity. And this is important because we live in an age where our algorithms and our in-groups kind of silo us and streamline us in such a way that we only ever hear, or we potentially only ever have to hear from people who more or less think just like us, theologically, politically, socially. And he thinks breaking bread with the dead, engaging with the past as the past, even when they have abhorrent views on any number of things, is a way that we can learn to grow in personal density. I I like this idea. We can grow as people of character, engaging with others without eliminating their otherness. And my hope maybe in these series of talks where we'll look at significant prayers throughout church history, uh, and my hope is this concept carries over into something like a devotional density, uh, which is, I, I think, actually part of being a person, being a human, uh, engaging with God. But tonight we are going to, in particular, consider the work of a 4th century monk and monastic chronicler. This is uh, an image of him, not a an exact portrait, a guy named John Cassian. Uh, He was an incredibly influential character in church history, but he's not particularly well-known in the Protestant West today. Has anyone besides Chris or Rachel heard of John Cassian before who doesn't have a graduate degree in theology? Oh, there we go. Nice work. Yeah, I know. I'm just disqualifying. Sorry. Um, He's a fascinating guy. Um, who even by contemporary standards traveled widely and wrote very prolifically. Um, So if you do decide ever on your own time to break bread with him and read more of him, you'll you'll find things to disagree with about him, things that he's a little unhelpful on. But I think he is very helpful in a lot of ways. 
And I want to consider his thoughts on this idea of praying without ceasing. Praying without ceasing. This is language that if you aren't aware of, it comes from the scriptures themselves. We read of David in Psalm 34, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. And in a similar vein, the Apostle Paul commands the Thessalonians to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, to give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. David has this resolve, Paul has a command, and Jesus tells a parable uh, in Luke 18, a parable about a stingy, miserly judge and a widow who just is persistent in asking him for something. And unlike so many of the parables that we read, Jesus tells us what this parable is about in the beginning. It's about not losing heart and praying without ceasing. So there's something of this call to continual prayer that arises from uh, the scriptures themselves. Now, to talk about praying without ceasing, 4th century monks that are portrayed in iconic reverential ways, it might sound like I'm starting in the deep end of prayer, the pinnacle of prayer, the high point. And to be honest, this is not at all what I found to be the heart of John Cassian's surprisingly moderate, at least by monastic standards, uh, but simple and practical approach to prayer. In fact, when I first read Cassian years ago, I, uh, I just was a little underwhelmed. I was like, oh, this is it? Okay, I guess this is it. This is all you have. Um, but so we, when we get there, you might find yourself in a similar place, just maybe a little preemptive warning. But admittedly, we're going to have a little bit of a longer runway before our takeoff, where we hear kind of Cassian's thoughts on praying without ceasing. But I want you to stick with me. And I first want to introduce his cultural moment, his historical setting, explain some of his theology, which is different than I think sort of standard Protestant uh, theology in some ways. Um, and then we'll finally get to that practice. So that's where we're going. History, theology, practice. So... A lot of Cassian's life, in fact, the majority of his life, is hidden from us. He wrote volumes. In fact, some of his works are over a thousand pages in modern editions. But he really doesn't talk that much about his own life. Uh, it's believed that he was born somewhere up here. And I apologize for the blurriness of this. But when you Google John Cassian uh, life map... You take what you get, even if it's a little blurry. But it was believed he was born somewhere in Romania to a fairly wealthy, land-owning, affluent family. And we don't really know what happened uh, in his life, but by 380 AD, he's down in Bethlehem. He's in the monastery in Bethlehem, and he has renounced, renounced that sort of life, and he's become a monk there. And uh, he, he's a bit restless while he's there. And after he's there for a number of years, he's sent from that monastery along with his closest friend and companion in a lot of his writings. And if you ever read him, uh, his friend's name is Germanus. And if you ever read uh, any of Cassian, when Germanus shows up, he's always asking like practical questions like, how do we keep praying if we get distracted? How do we keep praying if we get distracted? And I, so I just really like Germanus. Uh, I can connect with him, but... They were there for a number of years, and then they went to the deserts of Egypt for seven years, 
to interview some of the most well-known monks of their day, which is just an interesting phenomenon and a bit of a cultural difference. There were well-known monks at one point in human history, celebrity monks, and he's going around the desert interviewing them, asking them questions about hospitality, about the spiritual life, about scripture, about prayer. He's there for a number of years before he heads back to Bethlehem, and we he shows up in a number of places in church history. He was a, a, a companion or a friend of John Chrysostom, if you've heard about John Chrysostom. But he ends up in Gaul, in southern France, which I think is even further over there. So this, again, you get what you get when you Google John Cassian life map. But he ends up there, and he starts. He, he, he goes about founding a new Christian community. And he starts writing about writing down all of these interviews that he had with monks, all of the things that he learned in the Egyptian desert that he thinks new Christian communities in other parts of the world need to hear. He wants to connect them with their past, so they're not just reinventing the wheel. And if this era of church history is new for you, or unfamiliar uh, to you, a word or two is probably in order to explain why someone is looking for celebrity monks in the Egyptian desert in the first place, And why are there monks out in the desert? Who were these people that Cassian was going out to see? So a major shift had taken place during this time, uh, around this time. Christianity had gone from a persecuted minority to become the dominant religion and the cultural form of the Western world. And I don't think it was really anyone's initial intention, but after the emperor became Christian and sort of baptized the Roman Empire, being a Christian became part of being part of the uh, majority culture. It became a means of securing social power, and this was in pretty stark contrast to prior to this, where being a Christian was part of a minority oppressed group that was following a crucified Savior. And so people, men and women, were just concerned about this massive change that was going on in their culture. As, as uh, a now Christianized society um, had lost some of its sort of cutting gospel edge. Uh, and so we could imagine uh, people throughout, sort of throughout the empire fleeing to the desert as one of the first reform groups, seeing something's not right in the church. And one of the first countercultural movements within the church. And there were scriptural passages and patterns that inspired this move from noisy, busy, powerful, populated urban centers to simple, impoverished, and highly solitary lives in the desert. They modeled their lives often after Jesus' words to the rich young ruler, sell all you have, and also Jesus' time of testing and prayer in the wilderness. So they were fleeing the cities, heading to the wilderness, And I don't have, personally, an impulse to flee to a desert or a solitary place. And I don't have a theology of culture, either, that requires me to renunciate all forms of institutional power or influence. But there's something about an awareness that one's church, one's culture, has become toxic. Right? Something is wrong, that the dominant way of following Jesus has become kind of convoluted. It's become overly comfortable. Christianity has become a means of acquiring prestige and influence rather than a call to give freely of oneself, 
to model our lives after a Savior who did as much. So I have to confess, I'm sympathetic with these guys, that these men and women that fled to the desert. That was something was wrong with the church, something was wrong in our wider culture, and they wanted to flee from a shallow expression of faith to live a simpler, more genuine expression of the way of Jesus. A life of prayer, of manual labor, of hospitality. There's something about it that I actually find quite challenging and quite compelling, especially in our own cultural moment, where Christianity has been sort of a, a fairly powerful, significant shaper in our culture, and things are changing quickly, and people are grasping to hold on to that power. Uh, it, it's just an, there's some interesting parallels culturally between our moment, I think, and the years that people were fleeing to the deserts of Egypt. <clears throat> now, uh, an Anglican nun and a leading scholar of the literature from these desert writers, uh, who was at Oxford until last year when she passed away, a woman named Benedicta Ward, wrote that those who fled were not mostly church leaders, they weren't scholars or people of influence, they were just regular people. And when they moved to the deserts, they would live in small groups, uh, usually within proximity of an older monk who would be a little bit of their leader. And they would spend a lot of their time alone and in prayer, but they would always meet weekly to celebrate the Eucharist, to honor the Lord's Day, and to publicly read scripture together. They would spend a lot of their days, though, and this is what she says, meditating on as much of the Bible as they knew by heart, especially the Psalms. They undertook simple, repetitive tasks, such as rope making or basket weaving. Maybe some of you did basket weaving in high school in home ec. Um, And they did this so they could earn a simple living without distraction, and not have to leave their cells. They would often make very simple homes for themselves, sometimes even in caves. Uh, And these monks, especially the first generation that fled to the desert, in reaction and in disgust to what they saw as the indulgence and the entitlement and the compromise of sort of the broader Christian civic religion of the empire, the first generation that went out there, they really tested the limits of their bodies They did these extreme and often quite strange sort of feats of deprivation. They would go without food for long periods of time, go without sleep, go without drink, go without companionship. And this is the sort of thing that the desert Christians or the early Christian monks are often remembered for. If you read a history book that says anything about them, they'll usually talk about uh, these sorts of things. And I have to admit, when you come across it in reading, it all sounds deeply troubling. It all sounds very strange, very anti-body, very anti-Christian. But Ward, again, Benedict Ward, a, a kind of a, a leading expert on them, she balances this picture. And she says, undertaking dramatic feats of asceticism, which is sort of self, matters of self-denial, was not, in fact, the way of life favored by the majority of the monks. In the enthusiasm of the first years, they experimented with many kinds of ascetic practices, but soon realized that detachment from self could not be explored, or sorry, could be explored better by methods that were less extreme and therefore could be sustained. So they also avoided excessive deprivations because these would cause pride, one of the most sinister of vices 
amongst the monks. Pride. I'm more spiritual than you. You fasted for four days. I fasted for six days. Um, so it, it, they realized this was sort of a dangerous way to go about living their faith out there. And while they <clears throat> sought to get away from centers of influence and power and to seek solitude, central to the life of these monks was hospitality and maybe what we would call spiritual direction. So there were throngs of, of, of pilgrims, of people traveling into the desert in search of help for their spiritual lives. <clears throat> a monk famously contact, uh, commented, and, or it's not so much you can see on the map, um, There you can see where there's like, cl- like they have maps that are sort of clusters of monastic communities, and they keep moving further and further and further <laughs> south, because people just keep wanting to get away or being harder to find out there. Um, but one monk famously commented that the desert had turned into a city, that everywhere you looked, there were people looking for monks. And while the folks who may not have permanently fled the cultural centers um, <clears throat> of their day, they would take this long, demanding trek into the desert in order to meet one of these men and women and get some help, get a different perspective on their life. And so hosting whatever guest showed up at your cell door, at your cave, at your little hut, listening to them and their questions, taking them very seriously, offering them food and welcoming them, and giving them honest, though admittedly often demanding, spiritual advice. This was central work for the monks. Uh, The call to welcome the stranger is very central to their way of life. And in fact, Cassian writes that, uh, he says, if no one, uh, if there's a monk that is never visited by others, it's an indication of unreasonable and thoughtless strictness, or indeed the greatest of coldnesses. Uh, so he's sort of saying to monks, if people aren't showing up at your cell door to talk to you about spiritual matters, you're not doing the monk thing particularly well. Um, and so this relational and personal approach uh, that was characteristic, that this hospitable approach, uh, explains why so much of the literature we have, if you've ever read any of the writings of early desert monastics, it's just these short little bits of advice or sayings. And they usually start with, someone went to go see Abba Moses or Abba uh, Pachamus and said, Abba, do you have a word for me? They almost always start with a question. And so Ward remarks that the, the comments of the monks that were offered are not pieces of general teaching, like all-time teaching, but there are a few words that were regarded as a word for an individual, and they were received not as a starting point for debate, but a sacrament to be lived by. So she says if you start reading this literature and you, it finds it bothers you, it's strange, it confounds you, it confuses you, it's okay, it wasn't meant for you. So you can either not read it, or you can just keep reading it until something might actually land with you. And so these are the sorts of folks out in the desert that Cassian spent years getting to know, interviewing, and again, along with his buddy Germanus, that's always asking, like, what do we do when we're distracted? Uh, He probably didn't have that sort of voice. He probably had a very respectable (laughs) voice. And uh, Cassian wrote different works, but his most well-known works are called the Conferences, which is a collection of 24 interviews or conferences. 
with various monks who give longer answers. And one of the leading scholars, in fact, maybe the only scholar on Cassian, at least that I could find, is a guy named Columbus Stewart. Uh, and he speaks of these interviews, I think, in a beautiful way. He says, they're perhaps best seen as maps of the spiritual life. They are not a scientific atlas, but a collection of pilgrim maps. Everything on them is oriented to a destination. So there are little stories from people who've walked a little bit further along in their life with God, and they're trying to offer you a way to make sense of any number of things that uh, you could ask uh, a monk about. And that language of <clears throat> oriented towards a destination that comes with a map, it kind of acts as a nice segue into a consideration of Cassian's theology. Um and uh, this is not a, uh, an image of Cassian. This is an image of a guy named Abba Moses, who was a monk. Uh, that <clears throat> we're going to kind of Cassian um, interviewed when speaking about this. Uh, but Cassian's theology <clears throat> is, and probably just monastic theology on a whole, approaches the matter matters of spiritual life in a, from a different angle, a different orientation uh, than many Protestants like myself do but in ways that I've grown to appreciate and feel like I need to learn from. I generally am used to thinking about gratitude for what God has done for me as really the engine that drives my spiritual life, that empowers me to live my life with God. This is a deeply true thing that I cherish. Uh, I, I think kind of like a, a simple way to put it would be like, at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, we, we look back. I don't mean that it's in, in a negative way, but Protestant theology tends to look back to what God has done for us, and we believe that. Um, and <clears throat> every theological perspective or position has its own potential pitfalls within it. And sometimes, and I hear this from guests here, folks that come from that same orientation of always looking back, sort of don't always know what to do in the moment. Like, what do I do now? Now that I believe, what do I do with myself? How do I, how do I grow? How do I move forward with this? Um, and Cassian, for Cassian and monks of the desert, it actually worked the, the opposite direction. Instead of primarily looking back, they wanted to lay out a vision of what is in front of us, of what is ahead of us, what awaits Christians. Central to so much of their writing and teaching is Jesus' words that blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The vision of God that comes at the end of our life is sort of what is the engine that drives a lot of monastic theology. And this is all laid out, I think, pretty well and interestingly in this interview with this guy, <coughs> Abba Moses, which is just the best name for a monk. I think monks choose their name once they go into the desert. At least monks today choose a name. I just love that he was like, I'm going with Moses. Like, I just think it's so respect. That is so cool. But in the first conference, Cassian and his buddy Germanus ask Abba Moses, they say, hey, what's a monk? And in like a total celebrity monk move, Abba Moses says nothing. He doesn't respond. He just looks at them. And they keep asking him, they keep asking him, until finally, uh, until finally he speaks. And he, 
<clears throat> he says, when he eventually responds, he, he lays out this distinction, and this gets a little technical, so, so kind of bear with me here. Um, but he, he says, the goal or the telos, the purpose of a monk's life is the kingdom of God. That is the ultimate goal. And he says, but our objective, our proximate goal, is purity of heart. So he lays out these twofold kind of goals, a proximate goal and an ultimate goal. And in Greek, or I think it's, yeah, Greek, uh, it's skapos and telos, so they sort of sound like one another. He's playing off of it. And there's this twofold set of goals. The proximate goal, which is purity of heart or holiness, which leads to the final, which is the ultimate goal, our purpose, the kingdom of God, seeing God. Um, the one leads the way to the other. And he says this is true for so, this sort of twofold goals is true for people in all sorts of, all sorts of professions, all sorts of work. So he, Abba Moses spends time talking about farmers who work hard clearing their fields. Their proximate goal, uh, their close goal, their skapas is an untilled field, but their objective, their end, their telos, is a really good harvest. Abba Moses goes on through other sorts of professions that call for some sort of hardship, some risk and some discipline, merchants, soldiers, he goes on and on, articulating this nature of a proximate goal and then an ultimate goal. And his point in saying this is, the reason we do all of the strange things that we do as a monk... We flee from the culture. We live uh, simple, solitary lives. We pray, we meditate, we fast, we deny ourselves. We do all of this. This is our, our proximate goal that brings us to a purity of heart. But our ultimate goal is to see God. And he's going to say, if you get these two things confused, which monks do all the time, according to Cassian, they make the ends, the, uh, uh, the practices which they do, their ultimate end, They just get things backwards, and they make a huge mistake. But this proximate goal of purity of heart um, is something that, it's it's a synonym for love, really, for Cassian. A pure heart is a heart that is able to love. And so he says we undergo all of these sort of deprivations uh, to sanctify, to allow our thoughts and our emotions to be sanctified, so that we become aware of our endless propensity for self-deception, de- self and we grow in the possibility of discernment, and ultimately grow in love. And Cassian will pair this language of purity of heart with words like stability, steadiness, integrity, and often tranquility. These are virtues, these are characteristics that enable the monk, and really any follower of Christ, to love selflessly. So uh, Columbus Stewart, again, who is the the scholar on Cassian, uh, says that Cassian saw purity not as this pristine state to be protected from corruption, but it's a trait of a human being that has become fully alive. Purity of heart means it's an integrated, coherent self which is able to love in freedom and not under compulsion. And so this is the reason why they go through all the disciplines they do. Fasting, prayer, manual labor. They're all ways to have their hearts purified by the love of God. 
and I unplug this on accident. Here we go. We're almost there. Um, and there are ways of getting grace and love into their lives. And so Cassian warns consistently throughout his um, <clears throat> conferences uh, that those who are drawn to a monastic life or any sort of spiritual one-upmanship uh, in, in any way whatsoever, that there is a real danger ahead if they confuse approximate goal with an ultimate goal. The main point is being known by God and seeing God. And so it's worth saying there's a danger, I think, uh, a negative proclivity in the writings and practices of desert monastics that isn't just limited to them, but it's that disciplines that we undertake are somehow for their own sake. They no longer are ways of growing in love, but if anything, tragically intensify our sense of autonomy and self-possession. If they're not done for the love of God and with the end, the ultimate end of of seeing God, of knowing God and loving our neighbor, then one's spiritual self-sufficiency is just a form of pride and on the cusp of spiritual death. He cites cautionary tale after cautionary tale of monks who've done these massive sort of self <clears throat> or acts of self-deprivation. Maybe they've given away tons of wealth or possessions and then they come to the desert and they lose their cool and flip out when they can't find their pen or when someone has borrowed a book and refuses to return it. He says, what's the point if you give all of this away, but you don't grow in love? And so, <clears throat> again, the point of these practices or deprivations is the cultivation of love and ultimately being able to see God. So again, this proximate goal and ultimate goal is central, I think, to sort of understanding monastic theology. And you can see how it just works, I think, with a slightly different orientation than a lot of Protestant theology does. And a former professor of mine, a guy named Bruce Heinmarsh, who teaches at Regent College, in a lecture on Cassian I think gives a really helpful image on, on maybe how this works in some ways. So imagine, if you will, that someone you love is separated from you by a wall. You can't reach them, but you discover that there is a window in this wall, and you can see a little bit of them in the window. The reason you can only see a little bit of them is because the window is super dirty. And I mean, like, super dirty, like paint and dirt and... All, you've got to scrape. It's not just Windex. Like You're going to need significantly more than this. And it's going to take a tremendous amount of work to clean this window if you want to see your beloved on the other side of the wall who you're separated for. But Heimarsh says, your love will only lighten the exertion. It's not works righteousness to clean the window. It's a response to having seen a glimpse of them through the grime and the dirt in the window. So they want to clean the window. They want to undertake some of these practices so they can see more clearly. Again, Matthew 5.8 is central. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Cassian and his fellow monks, their desire is to see God. They want to stand in the presence of the one who made them. They want to see the face of love and life itself. And when they do so, they realize that it is only by God's grace and the work of the Holy Spirit 
that their sinfulness will be made pure. They'll be made holy. And they've already received a glimpse of their beloved in the grace and forgiveness of God. And they undertake these practices, solitude, prayer, manual labor, hospitality, self-examination, perhaps to see more. So I hope, I hope that made some sense, but I, I, I think the theology of the desert just works with a slightly different orientation uh, than many Protestants uh, are, work, are, are used to. But I think there's, there's something helpful in there for us. So I said a bit about his history, his moment, his context, some about the theology that he's working with via um, his buddy uh, Abba Moses. <clears throat> this was a long runway, and now we're ready for the takeoff, the practice of what does it mean to pray without ceasing. Um, and this is, uh, and, and this this comes in a later conference, conference ten, where he's having conversations with Abba Isaac, uh, and the key really is this: Come to my help, O God, Lord, hurry to my rescue. For Cassian, this is it. This verse holds all the treasures in it. Cassian's conferences says a lot about prayer more generally, uh, but it, when it comes to the desire or the practice of praying without ceasing, this verse, Psalm 70, verse 1, is the key that unlocks the door for him. It does sort of sound a little underwhelming at first, so I, need, I think I need to say a little bit more, because he says a little bit more about this. <clears throat> uh when monks would, when, when pilgrims would come to the desert and ask monks for help, there were sort of two schools of, uh, ask help specifically about prayer. Um, there are two sort of general approaches to prayer that we get out of, uh, out of the literature from the desert. And these are sort of boring, over technical terms, uh, that I don't think the monks actually use. I think subsequently, historians and stuff use. The first type of prayer are called antiretic prayers. And even antiretic, it just sounds like medicine of some sort. It sounds like if you're sick, you go and get a prescription of antiretic. Um, but it quite literally means counter-arguments. Talking back. When modern people think of our, our interior world, ourselves, our minds, we believe that our thoughts are only known to us. We're enclosed to the outer world. This was not the way our ancestors thought about our interior world. The pre-modern psyche is porous. It's vulnerable. It's open to attack. Our thoughts weren't just for us. They could be taken captive. They could be influenced. And this is how a lot of these monks thought about spiritual warfare and spiritual attacks. That they would have a thought and a demon or demonic influence would sort of take advantage of that and begin to work on them uh, and could have access to a porous mind. And so for them, the awareness of the spiritual world was very, very real. So when people would come out to speak to monks and I have these problems, I have these temptations, many monks would prescribe individual verses, uh, often psalms, for individual pilgrims. And they would memorize them and use these to talk back, to have a counter-argument to the demonic voice, the, the lies, the deceptions, uh, the temptations that they were going. 
One monk made a list of 487 possible temptations, which is just like astounding to me. <laughs> and he matches each temptation with a particular verse. So 487 temptations, 487 verses to talk back to. And these were used as anti-retic prayers, counter-argument prayers. And central here was the belief that the words of Scripture are more powerful or more truthful than whatever the attack was saying to you. If you've ever been in a hotel that um, has a Gideon's Bible in it, sometimes in the front of the Gideon's Bible, it has a guide. It says, like, oh, if you're feeling down, um, you should read this verse. Or if you're going through grief, you should read this verse. That's sort of like a modern uh, equivalent Though I don't know if Gideon Bibles are still in hotels, so maybe it's not as modern uh, as I thought, or as I mentioned. The second form that prayer advice was what, that was often taken was what's called monologistic prayers. Monologistic prayers, and these are prayers that are one word or one phrase, usually from Scripture, that the prayer would repeat to themselves over and over. And it was to recollect themselves, to bring themselves back to the reality of the presence of God. A drifting and distracted mind needs an anchor. That's something that my buddy Germanus uh, says. And so this sort of prayer, uh, this sort of repetitive prayer, was, was not a summons to a sleeping deity. Wake up, wake up, wake up. But it was a means to awaken a drowsy prayer, an individual, to the reality of God's presence to them already. This sort of prayer gives a way for an ever-moving, ever-distracted mind to be held, held from distractions. And again, Germanus is all, if you struggle with distractions, maybe Germanus is uh, uh, your guy. And, And the advice was often to match this phrase or this word with your breath. So you can breathe it in and breathe it out. And it stills your body and also holds your mind and makes you aware that you are in the presence of God at all times. God is already, are always already there for you. And it lets, sort of, it lets you hold the mind in a way from these endless distractions and allows the heart with, the mind with it as well to go deeper within, to concentrate on the Lord's presence and His promises. And in the desert, there's a deep culture of biblical meditation. Uh, this was a pre-modern oral culture that was on its way to literacy. And, um, in fact, a lot of the monks were quite nervous about literacy. They thought that it would somehow take the living and active word of God and, like, thingify it, just make it a thing, that somehow it would uh, subdue it. But many of the monks actually had much of, if not all of the New Testament memorized, and they definitely had all the Psalms memorized. And they would chew these things on it. And the word they used is ruminate. They ruminate on scripture. And rumen is the Latin word for the cud that a cow chews. So it's digesting and re-digesting scripture. And this form of prayer was, was often given as a way to do this, to meditate on one passage of Scripture. And if it sounds anything like modern mindfulness practices, it predates them, uh, for one thing. But the goal here is not mindfulness of oneself alone, or even inner peace. 
but it's awareness, it's mindfulness of the presence of Christ and our awareness of a deep need and dependence on him, allowing each moment to recognize God's reality. So Cassian's really simple resolution was just to combine these two forms of prayers, to take a simple phrase from scripture for him it's Psalm 70, verse 1. Come to my help, O God. Lord, hurry to my rescue. He will fight you that this is the best verse of Scripture. He probably won't fight you because I think he's a pacifist. Um, but he'll pray for you if you disagree with him. Um, and to match it to your breath as you went about your day, to make it sort of the drumbeat, the underlining rhythm of your movement uh, as you move through your day. Because... The monologistic prayer was often what you would do alone in seclusion in a time of prayer. couldn't really be sustained through the day. And the antiretic prayers just really became too cumbersome. Which verse for which temptation? Which verse for which demonic attack? So you wanted to bring these two together uh, in a very simple way. And uh, another theologian, uh, a guy named William Harmless, that is his actual name and is a great name for a theologian. Uh, he says this verse and this practice really encapsulates Cassian's basic theology, which is this. We are deeply, radically dependent upon God for help, for peace, for survival, for absolutely everything. That we need to acknowledge this with every breath and uh, and seek God's grace no less often. So I'm going to read a little bit. This is this is from Abba Isaac. Uh, I you know it's Cassian writing as Abba Isaac, but I just want to give you a little bit of what he says, and then just highlight some of the occasions on which this verse in his mind can be appropriately prayed. Um. Give me one second here. Yeah, he says, This is something which has been handed on to us by some of the oldest of the fathers. And it is something which we hand on to only a very small number of souls eager to know it. To keep the thought of God always in your mind, you must cling totally to this formula. Come to my help, O God. Lord, hurry to my rescue. It's not without good reason that this verse has been chosen from the whole of Scripture as a device. It carries within it all the feelings which human nature is capable. It is adapted to every condition and can be usefully deployed against every temptation. It carries with it a cry of help to God in the face of every danger. It expresses the humility of a pious confession. It conveys the watchfulness born of unending worry and fear. It conveys a sense of our frailty, the assurance of being heard, the confidence and help that is always and everywhere present. Someone forever calling out to his protector is indeed very sure of having him close by. This is the voice filled with the ardor of love and of charity. This is the terrified cry of someone who sees the snares of the enemy, the cry of someone besieged day and night and exclaiming, that he cannot escape unless his protector comes to rescue. He goes on to say, the short verse is an indomitable wall for all those struggling against the onslaught of demons. It is an impenetrable breastplate and the sturdiest of shields. 
he goes on to name some conditions, uh, some moments in his life where he prays this prayer. <clears throat> when I, he says, when, um, when I am assailed by a passion for good eating, which basically means he's tired of eating the simple food uh, that monks eat. Uh, when I think ahead to the time set aside for eating, you can see that eating is a big part <laughs> of his life. Uh, when the due hour has come, bid me to eat, but the bread disgusts me. Uh, he's a very, for a monk, he's a fairly normal person. He says when he has a headache, he prays this. When he has a temptation of the flesh, which is especially sexual, he has lots of conferences on chastity and sexuality. He has a lot to say about that. When I'm troubled by the pangs of, of rage, greed, of gloom, when I am drawn to scatter that gentleness which I had embraced as my own, when I am tempted by boredom, by vainglory, by a surge of pride, when I have bleakness of spirit, when I have a great overflow of spiritual thoughts, when I have images of unclean spirits. Our prayer for rescue in bad times and protection against pride in good times should be founded on this verse. He, he, he just keeps going and gives more instances of when a prayer like this is appropriate. Now, that's it. That's Cassian's approach to praying without ceasing, which maybe sounds like, again, the pinnacle of prayer that's only reserved for the best, for the most uh, spiritually mature or complete. But it's remarkably simple. It's by no means easy uh, but it is a practice and it is a method. It's a tool. It's a way to begin to pray without ceasing. Bruce Heinmarsh, that professor of, I, of mine that gave the image of the wall um, and uh, the window in it, he comments about how this teaching on simple, repeated prayer, matching a passage of scripture, a verse of scripture to our breath, uh, um, has really echoed through the ages. He says, he actually, I found it quite powerful. He says, the deep church is calling to us that this is a way we can grow in prayer. St. Augustine, who was a contemporary of Cassian, uses a very similar idea in what once was a widely read letter uh, to uh, a widow in Rome named Proba. But he uses the language of arrow prayers. He talks about the desert monks. And he's like sending little arrows up constantly. You're sending an arrow up. And it's something that bursts from the heart. This way of praying without ceasing lives on in the Orthodox Church through the practice of the Jesus Prayer. If people are familiar with this, you breathe in, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. And then you, oh wait, no, you breathe in, Son of the living God, and then you breathe out, have mercy on me, uh, a sinner. The Puritans spoke of prayer in a very, very similar way. They gave it a title, though, that I don't recommend. They called it ejaculatory prayers. You just send a prayer out as fast as you can, these prayers that burst from you. But repeatedly, uh, and again, a passage of Scripture. The great liturgy of the hours in the Book of Common Prayer begins with, O Lord, make... O God, make speed to save us, O Lord, make peace to to make help us. Yeah. Um, and one of 
in Peter Grieg's book, he has this. He often has heroes of prayers, and one of them for his one for simple prayers is Susanna Wesley, who was the father of of Charles and John Wesley, who were sort of great. Uh, church, wait, did I say the wrong Wesley name? Oh, oh, the mother, uh, yeah, mother of them. <laughs> but she needed to pray a lot because the father was often in prison uh, for various things. And she had a house full of children, and she would often throw her apron up over her head. And she would say a quick prayer, and everyone knew if the apron is on her head, give her a moment. But she would throw the prayer on her head, say a simple prayer, recite a psalm, take the apron off. So throughout her day, she would throw the apron up, throw the apron, it's just, it's the best thing. But again, as Heinmarsh says, this is a simple practice of constant prayer that the deep church offers us. This is a way that people have called to God and been heard by God throughout the generations. Eugene Peterson, in his um, paraphrase of the of the Bible, he renders Matthew six seven and uh, Matthew chapter six verses seven and eight this way: The world is full of so-called prayer warriors peddling techniques for getting what you want from God. Don't fall for that nonsense. This is your father you are dealing with, and he knows better than you what you need. With a God like this loving you, you can pray very simply. This, to me, is the heart of Cassian's theology of praying without ceasing. We don't need complicated, theologically dense, or articulately kind of powerful, lofty prayers. We pray simply in the way that we simply breathe. I've noticed uh, uh, in my own life, I so often labor under the false notion that when everything is right, when everything falls into place, that's when I'll find time to pray. That's when I can actually spend time praying. But before I can pray, I just need to get some things in order. I need to take care of important matters. I need to maybe break a bad habit. I need to let go of residual anger from someone, which usually means I won't let go of that anger. I need to get the dishes done. Now I need to walk a dog. I need to get my heart in the right place. I need to finish a lecture on prayer. I need to find the right words to say. The list goes on and on. And it's not that those are bad concerns. The dishes need to be done. But this tradition of praying without ceasing, as Cassian presents it, first to the monks in Gaul, but I really think to the whole church, monastic, layperson, whoever, his practice of matching our breath to a deep and simple truth of Scripture The reality that we're dependent creatures who have the ear of a good, kind, and capable God. It it means we don't, it doesn't ask us to wait until we get all our ducks in a row. We have everything figured out or have the right, perfect words. We start where we are and we start with the lives that we have. We pray as the advice of Dom Dom John uh, Chapman. We pray as you can. Don't try to pray as you can't. Come to my help, O God. Lord, hurry to my rescue. C.S. Lewis encourages us to lay before him what is in us, not what we think ought to be in us. And he he says what seem our worst prayers may really be in God's eyes our best. And one of the best pieces of advice that I've received on prayer uh, comes from Peter Grigg. And he just says, The key is to keep it simple, to keep it honest, and to keep it up. 
And I think what Cassian offers us through this very simple method of matching our, our breath with the psalm, come to, our, come to my help, O God, Lord, hurry to my rescue, gives us a way. So I've talked for longer than I thought I would, um, but I would be happy to talk about anything that we've touched on. You are also free to get more cookies or to go to bed. Um, but yeah, we, uh, we open it up for a conversation at this point. Um, I know most of the people in here. If I don't know, if you think I might not know your name, just remind me of your name. Um, but yeah. So based on what you just shared and learned, is there a, a practice of prayer that you are personally trying to implement now? There's a, a number. This is one of them. Yeah. Um, there's a, um, a, a, a Christian uh, songwriter. Uh, he's Canadian. Uh, named Steve Bell. And he has a version of this come to my help oh god lord hurry to my rescue which is very simple and i i i'm not like oh i think about it all the time because i'm like super spiritual but it just gets in my head and i i find i mean i put that line in today about needing to not waiting till i finish writing a lecture on prayer to to pray because i i feel like yeah like this is a way that um has enabled me to realize like each moment and it, it, it doesn't have to be a big lofty complicated thing. It doesn't have to be an emotional encounter. It doesn't have to be a breakthrough moment, but just, it really does. I like this language of recollect because I feel like I just so quickly, I'm so scattered everywhere. And that's even before I get on my phone, which just scatters me even more and can bring me to like any far corner of the planet and it just brings me back to the reality of of who i am and where i am and kind of what i need and um i yeah i mean i started walking our dog early early we just got a dog you know but uh started walking the dog and i was like i want to use these walks this time to pray and if i just wait until like i can pray and walk at the same time like i just don't get much praying done. It's like I'll have a moment, but then I need to, you know, pull him or, or, or have him not pull me, and or I need to pick up his business or whatever. And but the, it's just a, like to me, this is becoming. Sometimes I realize, oh, I have been praying, or I don't kind of realize consciously I was praying. Like it, when it when it, it becomes a rhythm of your your heart, and it yeah, it, it helps me be very thankful for things and. There's other practices of prayer, but this has been a helpful thing for me over the last 12 months or so. Um, and I, I'd read John Cassian a long time ago, um, but just didn't really do anything with it. I was like, oh, neat. Um, but, yeah, so I don't know. Yeah. Um, I'm, just, I'm just wondering about just the difference between, you know, the beginning you were talking about you know, the kind of Protestant world that looks back and this, which is kind of looking forward into what is all around us. 
just thinking about the difference between an ascendant culture, mm-hmm. which was the Protestant world, you know, nation states beginning to kind of, you know, yeah, and so on, and this period, which was a period of disintegration. Mm-hmm. The Roman Empire was even even as it was becoming Christian, yeah. it was it was going down. Yeah, yeah. You know, just reflecting about this age that we're in in the Western world, yeah, which is an age of descent. Yeah, we're on the way out, and this may be why this is so helpful to us, because as cultures unravel, there's just so much more distraction. Yeah, I mean, so much more to. We're all kind of grasping at straws. Mm-hmm. And there's just so much stuff that's flying at us, literally in our pockets. But yeah. this stuff begins to kind of say, you need me. Yeah. You know? I, I don't know, it's just interesting. Yeah. That we can look back if we sort of feel like we're going somewhere great. Yeah. But if we feel like we're going somewhere really awful, perhaps, this, here's God. Yeah. It's been through pandemics and wars and mm. horrible things and people have survived and even thrived. I don't know, it's just interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, I like that. I, that's, yeah. Yeah, Chris? Do you have any good references for like, do they do like silent prayers at all? Like sitting in silence or any techniques for that? Or was it just... No, yeah, there's lo- yeah, they do lots of uh, lots of other kind of forms of prayer. I mean, I think <clears throat> part of, part of going away. I I don't know. I'm not really. I don't really know this. So, <laughs> uh, but I I do sort of think there is something that comes out of this period that really is begins. And obviously, it can be it, be. it was overblown in the desert, and it can be overblown today too. It wasn't always that way, but like a look, a, a look inside. Uh, um, and there's something about being in a like a fierce landscape where you're alone, and you don't have distractions. That you really have to wrestle with yourself uh, in ways that just day in, day out life. Good things in life, not necessarily all the trivial, indulgent things of life, but just good things of life don't allow you to stop and kind of turn in. And I think a lot of what <clears throat> came out of the desert literature that has survived uh, has been because of practices of, of silence, of learning to be still and attend to what's going on inside of you. So even, you know, the history of like the seven deadly sins, which were, you know, the eight vices uh, in the desert, like kind of early, this is like early pre-pre-pre-modern psychology kind of emerges from this from this period, but it, it comes out of this period because they, they were people that um, took quite seriously be still and know, <laughs> know that I am God. Or what is Psalm 4? Lay on your bed and be quiet. <laughs> um, so there were, yeah, there's definitely um, other practices. And and they would, again, but they, 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 they also were not just, they were not individuals in the way that we are. I mean, it's easy to think of 
people fleeing to the desert as being kind of like prototypical individualists. I'm going to do what I want. I don't need anybody. But they met weekly for Eucharist. They met weekly for the public reading of Scripture. And they very much followed like what the institutional church said. Like even this, the, the story with Abba Isaac begins because there's this, I didn't know how to fit it in with time, but there's this story of, it begins with, it's, it's a story of this other monk named Abba Serapion, and he reads this letter from the bishop that basically says, if, if you're praying and you're imagining what God looks like in your prayers, you have to stop. You can no longer pray to an, like an image of God anymore. This is, it's called the, like, anthrop- anthropomorphic, anthropomorphite controversy, and there's other kind of stuff with it. And this guy is weeping. He just has, he's been a monk in the desert for 30 years, and he's like, they've taken away God from me. How do I pray? And then it, you know, Cassian, who um, then kind of moves into this idea of, of praying without images, praying with simple words or, or praying other things. So, sorry, that was sort of a ramble, and I forgot why I started telling that story. But, um, yeah, they defi- there's definitely other ways of prayer that were individual, that were collective. And monks, I think monks saw themselves, even though they're out in the desert, they saw themselves as under the authority of the church. Uh, and would not, this is not choose your own adventure. Uh, I mean, they speak of heresy as like bad for your health. Like it will kill you. Um, and so they, they were pretty like, n- like pretty strict on, on that sort of stuff, uh, as well. Anyway, I'm just sort of talking. Did that answer your question? Yeah. Are those techniques in the conferences or are those in any of other casting boards or are those just? Uh, they're in the conferences, and then you see it. You see it at work. So, like the Cassian is a he. Again, he's a chronicler. He interviews monks. But there's other collections of writings from from Christians in the desert, and they're often just someone shows up, asks a monk something. The monk tells them something. Next, next, next thing. It's just very kind of pervert, like like proverb, like little proverbs, little phrases, little sayings. And some of those talk about these sorts of things, but yeah. Um, and there's an alphabetized saying according to monks, and then there's ones that are categorized by ideas. And anyway, yeah. Um, I'm Allie. Um, two questions. Yeah. How are you teaching your kids to pray, and how have you learned Ooh. from your kids how to pray? Yeah, these are good questions. I'm definitely not uh, doing the best job of teaching my kids how to pray. We pray. I pray with them every night, uh, so we pray together. Um, there's a few things like I use. Um, if I can take out this device, I just have a little app that has um, uh, like evening prayer or uh, Compline. So I pray with my kids at the end of the day. Um, Visit this place, O Lord, and drive far from it all snares of the enemy. Let your holy angels dwell with us, preserve us in peace, and let your blessing be upon us always through Jesus Christ our Lord. That has a few other things. And then the Almighty and merciful Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us this night forevermore. We also ask, I've asked them for prayer, if they would pray for me for certain things. 
we ask them if we, they can pray for things, and then we we have a mantra. Well, it's not a mantra, I guess, but a prayer that uh, <laughs> we have a secret code. It's a call and response that, our, especially our daughter Lily, like she. We do this each night. So she says, "God loves you." I say, "God loves me." God is with you. God is with me. God delights in you every single day. God delights in you. How dare you? No. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But she gets it all. She always gets me. She gets me before I can get her. It's like I'm always like, oh, you know, like, and like talking about something, and she's gonna, and then she's like, God loves you. I'm like, ah. But um, yeah, I think I think um, I think yeah. I mean, I think praying in bed has been the main the main one, and then um, we have had sort of times of. Short time. I mean, during the pandemic, we had we would pray as a family because we didn't go to church. Um, we pray before meals, but it's a good question. It's something that um, it's a sort of different story. But as my son is turning thirteen, it's something where like this this summer, talking about being more deliberate and shaping time weekly times where him and I would pray and study. But we're sort of. Putting that a little bit on hold. Do you have anything else you'd want to say? Linda? I mean, I think there have just been the, the like bedtime prayer. Um, and that's taken, there have been other forms of that. I think, well, when I think actually from you, we kind of picked up the heights and yikes, mm-hmm. um, like a practice of examining at the end of the mm-hmm. day, which yeah. we've done with varying. Trying to, yeah. <laughs> really, yeah. It's just normal. This is what we do. It's yeah. Like, you know, it's just like, of course. Yeah. Pray about that, or yeah. We'll invite God into it. It's just, yeah, it's normal. Yeah. And that would be a great thing if that's what my kids <laughs> left the house with. That would be really, yeah. Yeah, Ben. Yeah. Have a question. Um, uh, thank you very much. This has been really interesting yeah. and helpful. I'm fascinated by the the, the future oriented motivation yeah, in, yeah. in prayer yeah, and yeah. spirituality, um, as opposed to sort of a past oriented one. Gratitude for what Jesus has done for me, therefore I'm motivated to you know. And yeah. part of me is like, well, why do we have to choose between those two? You know. Yeah. Um, I'm certainly brought up with the Protestant tradition, and yeah. my tendency is to to yes. Yeah. Think of motivation in the spiritual life is is it's not it's not works righteousness. It is striving because mm-hmm. I, I know what has been done for me. Already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the status I've already been given. You know, um, 
but I'm just fascinated by this idea that sort of the the it's that a lot of what you've been talking about is so, I assume is sort of like what's what's called beatific vision in a sense like to 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 see to yeah. see God you need to purify your heart and that's the the telos that's the end uh, and the goal and I just have a, I guess my question is how does that square with kind of and I haven't read I, I haven't read a lot yeah, yeah. Of much of the stuff yeah, at all yeah. so, so um, there may be lots of, of reflections on this but kind of that idea of being saved by grace through faith for good works uh, in, in, in a way that anticipates the coming yeah, yeah, and, the, yeah. and the renewal of all things yeah, yeah. that tell us in terms of is actually not just to see God but for mm. God yeah, yeah. to make all things new. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, which is about engaging in all of life. And, yeah, which yeah. Which is very much Protestant yeah, yeah, sort of yeah. emphasis, really recognitional yeah. yeah. emphasis, which I love. Um, but maybe the Protestants yeah. have sort of dropped by the wayside this idea of, of it's really important to to strive to have a pure heart to see God. Yeah, know? yeah. Um, I, yeah, right now. Yeah. Um, I don't know what the yeah. question is. I, I, I guess no. I guess yeah, yeah. It's just if if it's, if if the end, if the if the if the end of the, if the human purpose to tell us the end is to see God. One could come away thinking the ultimate place we wind up in is just in some very platonic, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of uh, removed from the physical world, yeah. having some spiritual experience for all the Yeah, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, 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 so yeah. I'm yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I well, I think one like one like about choosing either one or why not have both. I totally agree with. I mean, there are. I mean, there is. There is. Um, and I, yeah, I put myself in the, the same Protestant. Tradition. This is sort of how I, my my spiritual life works. Um, uh, or maybe not works, but um, <laughs> or, or, or my general like disposition. Um, but yeah, I, I do think there are definite tendencies in desert, like dangers, or, or or in 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 like some of the desert writings or just Christian writings that do kind of have that. Uh, it becomes unclear what what the end is for the created yeah. realm and for and for culture. And one of the things I when I hear be they don't when I hear beatific vision, I tend to think of like really like elaborate mystical language of union and like kind of which I find Cassian Cassian talks about about moments of of prayer. It, it calls it like fiery prayer. Mm-hmm. Which is sort of just like it's a momentary thing that can sometimes happen, like kind of like like lost in wonder, love and praise, whatever yeah, the, the yeah, hymn yeah. says. You just have these moments, mm-hmm. but he's like they're just moments. You don't look for them. You don't make them. Uh, they they are gifts that, that you're given. Um, but when I, I when I think of beatific vision, I tend to think more like medieval, very elaborate, very detailed, and I I just from what I've read. Both in Cassian and then people, he, the desert is often pretty reticent okay. to speak about. Yeah, it's, it's like what actually seeing God is going to be like. Yeah. They're like, this is, 
but it is one of it is one of love. But Cassian is very concerned with justice um, and uh, sort of things things being right. But yeah. I think it's de- I think you've put your finger on something that I find um, n- the word that's coming is lacking. Like it's not it's not it's not like all. It's not all the, the desert doesn't do everything, or these guys don't do everything. I think particularly well, but what I do like, what I do appreciate is I, I sometimes feel like yes, I believe. I look back. Now what do I do? I don't have to do anything, and I, or at least what I hear like articulated, or sort of struggling to figure out is like, how do I do something to grow in my faith but not make it me like works righteous and I so what I appreciate about what I appreciate about the desert writings is like this idea yeah this idea of like wholeness and of and of love and this idea of uh, the purity of heart is what allows you to love other people and and ultimately love which is you know leading to love of God so they have it's like you can do things now that are ways to get more grace into your life uh, and and so that's what I, I found sometimes like just lacking in my own life um, or my own sort of spiritual uh, upbringing. But yeah, and I, I don't know. There's a part of me that, like, and this is I said it. I mean, not that I would recommend or hold anyone to remembering what I said, but like, I don't have a theology that you need to a theology of culture that renunciates all forms and institutions of power. Like, I don't think this is the only way to live. And I do sort of wonder, though, if some of the Desert Fathers would be like, ah, oh, to hell with it. Like, just let it burn. Like, it's all... Not not necessarily, like, the Earth. I think they very much... But, like, at least big... Like, cities and culture, I just think they see it as, like, it is a sinking ship, and we have got to get people off of this sinking ship. Um, for their own sake. Um, yeah, Peter. Uh, just to uh, kind of add some context to, to the beatific, uh, beatific vision, uh, if you read Drewfaust's book on the Civil War, the uh, called This Republican Suffering, she makes the point, and I wish I, I could have reference in front of me, that really it was up until the Civil War that the beatific vision was sort of the um, uh, sort of tell us of the Christian life, even in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the sort of the massive death of uh, that brought about by the Civil War that kind of turned the vision of what was to come into this family reunion, uh, mm-hmm. sort of making it very democratic and. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, if you will, almost casual. Uh, and I, I, th- I thought that was really striking. And, and I, I mean, that wasn't the focus of her book, but she was, I think, making the point that uh, our, our current view of, of what is to come uh, was, has largely been shaped by, by the Civil War and the, uh, and, and the death and mayhem that uh, that that resulted, in. Mm. but um, just about also this um, John Cassian's work. I mean, well, 
Last night I saw Nova uh, a special on the renovation of Notre Dame, and I, I've been thinking that uh, I, I, I don't know if the splendor, if you will, of the medieval world or the medieval churches uh, would have happened without this kind of seeding of uh, vision for for the uh, for the beauty and, and the splendor of God. Uh, I mean, today, you know, churches look like Home Depot, and, uh, the, uh, and, and and I think there's a theology there that uh, uh, we just you know, who cares? Uh, there are more important things. Well, maybe, maybe not. Uh, and uh, and and the uh, so so I do think that idea, and even in the Old Testament, there's uh, that recurring theme of lifting up your eyes, mm-hmm. uh, and the idea of pilgrimage, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, all of that. Uh, even I think even John Bunyan. Uh, might have picked up on that, that we are heading somewhere and uh, having sort of a vision kind of, not not necessarily mystical beyond us, but something that um, reminds us that this is not all there is, Mm. uh, is kind of a, uh, is is part of the beauty of the Christian faith. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, thank you, Peter. Yeah, I I mean, sorry, this is just going back here. Uh, looking at this again over the last little while, I found like there are some interesting, so I went to, um, I've done uh, like a 48-hour retreat. Well, I've tried to do 48 hours, neither year. I've actually made it the full 48 because I've, whatever. But I tried to do a retreat <laughs> at a monastery, and I've, I've, as someone who like welcomes guests into the, into my house uh, and talks with them. I don't know. There was something about like going to a different place with different people for the purpose of prayer and reflection. That I mean, I I think we make a space like that for people um, here, but I don't experience this place that way. Mm-hmm. It just made me think, like, oh wow, there is something to what we do that we're not. We're sort of loosely related, maybe like third or fourth cousins in some way, and we have severe, like a lot of things that are quite different. But something about the, a way of life that is like is really living a different rhythm and inviting people into it, really, and then giving them a space to ask questions and to, and to find God. There was something about that. I was like, oh, this kind of feels like something that we we do a little bit around here, but. But very different. But yeah. Yep. So are you doing those? Huh? You were there. Oh no, I yeah, no, I just um I do just this. <laughs> I just was curious if um this woman had uh, anything to say about like confession in uh like prayer in terms of like walking the power of the Holy Spirit and experiencing Yeah. Um that together. Then I think we were talking about like some of like the renewing and for me, I think that yeah. has to do with confession, and so I just was yeah. curious um, if he spoke. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think one of the, like, I am all 
I'm like 100. I'm like all in on the reformers' view of the priesthood of all believers. But I theologically, I'm there. Practically, I feel like the priesthood of all believers means the priesthood of no believers. So I don't think people practice confessing sin or know what to do when someone (laughs) confesses sin uh, to them. So there's something in me that I don't, I don't actually really totally understand, so I don't want to, but like something about like a confessional practice that, that more liturgical churches have. Um, there's something about that to me that I think speaks to what you're saying. And like I, <clears throat> I mean, I know what it's like to have an unforgiving heart for a long time and holding on to that, like that bitterness and holding on to, a wrong that a genuine wrong that was done to me, uh, and holding on to it, and then like just fixating on it, and it just got so ugly. And then realizing, I have turned this into some, and like confessing it, and just really feeling like getting like a new lease on life in some ways. Like I was like, man, I just spent, I've just spent a year plus. Like looking at the world through the lens of this this thing and holding on to it and looking and every other person for what someone else to be like, oh, I'm so sorry that happened to you, and just it just got really bad. And then finally, just confessing and and leaning on forgiveness, it just opened up a lot for me. I mean, it's not as though I've been perfect since or have not, you know, continued to harbor unforgiveness or bitterness or. Or whatnot. So I do. I I believe there's a real when we hold our sin. What is what is David saying in the Psalms? Like I wasted away uh, within me. Um, And so I think yeah, there is a real um, yeah. I I I I think sin is real. I think one of my there's a a book we often give folks here on sin um, called the way it's not supposed to be, and he to find sin as vandalism of shalom. So shalom is God's peace, God's wholeness, things being in right relationship. And sin vandalizes that and ruins it. And I'm like, if like, I like that because um, when, when I, yeah, when I when I when I vandalize God's peace through the words I say, maybe through the words I don't say, through whatever decisions. I make like I can see the destruction and I I just and I see in other people's lives as well people who've really suffered through some of their choices or through things people have done to them um I think sin is very real and I I think it's serious stuff and I think it holds people in bondage uh and like you know um the monks choose to do these things because they want to be free. You know, is like one of the things they long for. And so they want to be free from all of that stuff. So anyway, I just sort of, but yeah, is there anything you want to say about, or, or did I answer that? Or I think I just rambled. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that those are good thoughts. And I think that like the greatest like growth periods in, like, my prayer life are heavily linked to confession. And, you know, um, it says, like, to confess to one another. 
get together and you know, oil and pray and confess to one another and understand that there's like tremendous power in that and I think that the freedom that they were looking for I think is often found in confession and um, the more we acknowledge like who we are and the corruption that sin has in our lives I think the more we're capable of receiving God's grace and not mm. just like salvation as a moment but yeah. salvation in just like in the grace today and seeing it and um, it's a part of the like yeah, and it, like, yeah, and, I mean, oftentimes my prayers start with confession because I don't want to pray. Mm, yeah. <laughs> right. I am really, I don't want to pray. Um, I'm yeah. a professional Christian and I don't like to pray sometimes. And, yeah. Um, yeah, and like that's where like I start a lot of the time or just like a confession of attitude or I'm having a really hard time believing this or I, yeah, I want to be praying about this guy, but I am so distracted. Like, I, I, I don't even have the power in myself. Like, I love that guy's question. I'm just like, what do you do when you're distracted? I don't even have the power in myself to get my mind back on track without confession. This morning I was trying to pray, and I was just like, ooh, how did I land here, God? And I was like, God, I, like, forgive me. Like, I can't even stay on track. And he's, you know, the most glorious, you know, lift your eyes up. I can't do that. I'm not even capable. And so I just was curious if they had any, you know, Thoughts or like if that was a part of their practices and confessing to each other and directly to the Lord. And I also am not quite sure how that fits in like church history in that time period. Yeah, because the theology of the Holy Spirit is like under development. Yeah. Wait, or say more about I don't. What do you mean by it's under development? Or well, I guess I would just think. Um, What's the time of this? Again? Uh, it's the fourth century. Yeah. So. Yeah. so wasn't that like the third century? I'm just not sure what people are saying. I don't know. Sorry, that's all. I, I find I don't know, but I just yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. The, the sharing of creeds, the yeah, yeah. Three seven. The Apostles' Creed predates all of this. Yeah. Around the period of the formation of the Nicene Creed. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The doctrine of the Holy Spirit well before this. Yeah. Right. Perfect. Yeah. I don't think, like, the gift of the Holy Spirit was never meant to negate negate confession. Right. I think it's probably. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. Is that I? Sorry, I got a little lost there. Is that what you were or at the end there? I was not or? saying that. Oh, I just didn't. Like, I don't. Do you know anything more, Joshua, about practices that the desert fathers and mothers had around confession? Uh, I just I think confessing to one another, like at the weekly meeting, like the mm-hmm. they call it the syntaxis, the public reading of scripture uh, when they would meet. And I think they often received confession from people that uh, visited them and would yeah, speak forgiveness. But yeah, um, I think that taking the Eucharist of that on the night he was betrayed, he took the cup. Yeah, confession is acknowledging the ways you were betrayed. Mm. Yeah, and confession is the embrace, and I do think that. The Eucharist is the way in which that encourages 
the, the acknowledging of betrayal, mm-hmm. and then also like the receiving of the grace. Yeah. And I think this is why the Lord's Yeah. I think related to that, um, like to confess, literally, it's like agree with, and so we mm-hmm. confess sin, but we also, I think, in some of like the breath prayers, where it's it's, a, it's agreeing that we're dependent and mm-hmm. we're needy. Mm-hmm. I think there's an element of confession even in that what you were describing, mm-hmm. like. You have like a, a list of things you pray when faced with temptation. You're acknowledging mm-hmm. your proclivity to fall into temptation. I think, and it's like a reality check. Mm-hmm. I think in some ways, some of what confession is is that mm-hmm. like, actually the reality. Mm-hmm. I'm sinful. I'm weak. I have this tendency. Mm-hmm. I need the blood and body of Christ. I need God's help right mm-hmm. now. They start just going back to the distraction thing. I, I'll, yeah, I, I mean, for me, kind of that idea of the what they uh, call the monologistic, kind of slowly, prayerfully chewing over and repeating a, like a line and matching it with your breath. Yeah, for me, uh, there was a, a period like it was a, yeah actually just about a year ago. Like I just. I was like, remembered, I said to Sarah, or maybe I even said it at a meeting or something, I was like, I'm so full of other people's words. I don't want any words. And like, I couldn't handle hearing words from, and I was just so exhausted um, and tired. And to, previously in my life, prior to that exhaustion, yeah, very distracted in prayer. I still am distracted in prayer. But practicing that, like matching a simple word or phrase with my breath and just setting a timer and just trying to stay with that has been, has just given me a different, um, I'm significantly less distracted in my prayers. It's, and some, you know, that's more of like a contemplative practice. And sometimes when you read people that write on contemplative practices, contemplative prayer, it's like, this is the only way to pray. This is the best I just found that it was a very helpful way to pray for a season and has actually just been really beneficial to other types of prayer and given me an ability to help, like, as my mind dings here or dings there, it brings me back. It it brings me back. And then I, I find I don't always go as far. And it, it just helps me be present to myself, to be present to God, and to be present to the things I really do want God's help with, whether it's for me or for my family or for my friends or for the world. Um, so I have found that as a way to help. It has, it's, you know, it's helped me um, be, have my distractions determine my time of prayer less. Not completely, not whole, and I don't know, it could be different tonight. I don't know, but um, yeah. Yeah. Is it Blaine or Blair? No. Yeah, well, could you remember Sloan. Sloan. Oh, I had the A. It's the end. It's the end. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's been a little while, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I was just wondering, like, I 
wondering about, um, like, if you came across what you thought about. It seemed like a lot of this is focused on, um, like, uh, I guess, like, interior prayer or, like, mm-hmm. prayer by yourself. Um, but what about, like, extending that to, like, prayer and community? And kind of the same yeah. question of, like, corporate prayer, like, where you can yeah. pray. Yeah. But, like, for me personally, I find, like, distraction and, like, a barrier goes up when I'm asked to pray with other people. Oh, wow. Well, yeah. Like, praying without ceasing. And so I'm wondering if. I guess, like, if you have any experience with that. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. How you... Yeah. I mean, the monks were very serious about, and took very, like, they would pray at certain hours of the day. So it's almost like, I mean, they wouldn't have um, a phone with an alarm, but it's almost like, these these times of day, these are the prayers. You know, I don't know exactly what, some of them are different. Some current monastic orders have set things, but it's sort of like, it's noon, I'm doing the Lord's Prayer. It's 6 p.m. It's right before dinner. I'm praying for uns- like, so there were rhythms of prayer like that were daily. Like I wake up, this is what I do, um, and then there were other like weekly, like getting together to pray with other Christians. Um, but yeah, I I actually find that um, I praying with other people. My difficulty is sometimes I just get nervous. Do I say? the right words or like I, that's where I get nervous but I, I often do find I, it's just me personally I find praying with other people sometimes much easier than praying alone mm-hmm. so I have I think the, maybe the opposite to me praying alone has been very, a very hard thing uh, to develop but but you were asking about like could you say more about what I, I start again I just started talking I address mine just kind of yeah asking people like thinking about how this extends maybe to like more corporate or like communal prayer. Yeah. Or if you thought about how you might adapt that. Um, yeah. I mean, I'll be honest. I pray. I pray this often listening to sermons because, like, uh, not that I can give good sermons, but I know I'm like, well, I've heard someone else preach that, or Tim Keller did. You know, like what, like. <laughs> And I'm just like, wow, I'm just out of the moment right now. And like, if there is a word from the Lord through, you know, the proclamation of scripture for me, I'm missing it because I'm being a total jerk, (laughs) like so judgy. And so I do find that I need sometimes, sometimes at church, it's just because I'm a terrible person. Uh, I pray a lot because I'm like... I can just be kind of crit. I can I can be critical or judgy or self righteous or, um. So anyway, maybe maybe that's not exactly what you were asking, but yeah, Peter, did you? Uh, you mentioned earlier some corporate prayer or corporate gatherings in Texas. Yeah, it's the public reading, right? Oh no, the, I, I, I never oh, yeah. heard of the word with, with reference to that. But, yeah. Uh, hearing that uh, put me into etymology uh, frame of mind and uh, syntax the idea of syntax was originally something having to do with uh, Greek military formations and uh, and because it was sort of it's sin meaning with and then mm-hmm. the tactics uh, of, mm. uh, of uh, sort of how do we arrange a battle to and this uh, it sort of reminded me that Sometimes, you know, we might think of the uh, kind of this corporate care as being just kind of nice and uh, otherworldly, whereas syntaxis, I guess, has embedded within it 
a real sort of sense of urgency, um, and that of not necessarily triumphalist, but kind of a tacit acknowledgement that would seem that we are at war. Mm. And, uh, and, and this is something that we really must do, mm. not just because it gets us together, mm-hmm. but uh, the arrangement of the saints may in fact have sort of a something very purposeful yeah. uh, that uh, kind of it, 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 in, the, in the modern day uh, praying with the mystics you know can sound just a little bit uh, ephemeral and I, I don't know if that's really what they would want for us mm-hmm. yeah yeah no I like that I like that you bring in the word tactic and yeah did you have your hand up, Sarah, or were you a minute? Um, yeah, I was thinking, Sloan, about um, one of the things that's helped me in corporate prayer is to, uh, and I don't, I don't know quite how this ties in, but like the, the anchor idea, like, um, an anchoring idea in that for me has been, um, like if I'm really listening to what other people are praying, sometimes that, that brings things to mind that I haven't thought about in a very long time. And I, and I take that as, as a prompt to pray then for that too. And so I think that's, um, yeah, I think there's something about the kind of that, the centering practice that you're describing here that not only does it help us Come, come back from our distractions. I think it helps us maybe pay attention to what distracts us mm-hmm. and, and to actually be more reflective about that or to learn something from where our mind goes or to, and then I can see those occasions as like, maybe that is an opportunity to bring that to God in prayer too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Could you tell me your name? I don't know. I'm Amanda. Hi, Amanda. Um, yeah, I just, along that line, I guess, I have a question about like, when you're choosing scriptures to pray or even just how to organize your prayer time, like, either what they did or what you personally prefer. Do you divide it between, like, I tend to lean toward, like, self-focused prayers, like, like not that's bad, right? Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. So just sort of uh, how, how does how, like organizing like a prayer time and is that is it sort of what you're? Yeah. Yeah. I I mean I I would really actually love to just open this up to anybody that's willing to share about things that have worked for them. I a thing that I've started um, towards the end of last year is I got a small notebook and it, just in regards to th- praying for things that aren't just 
myself or praying in a way that is just trying to be present uh, to myself and to God. I got a book and I just wrote Monday and then I skipped two pages Tuesday and I just, it's just around my house. Now I look at it each day before I take the dog for the walk. So it's like, all right, it's Friday. These are the five people that I've written down. And like, so I have something that's like not just in me that's somewhat formal or it's, it's tangible and I can return to it. So if I skip Saturday, Sunday, Monday, it's Tuesday, instead of just being like, ah, like I, whatever, it's like, uh, it's Tuesday. These are the things that I'm like committing to pray for. So like that's, and that's a bit of a prayer journal that also then has, if as I'm praying for those things, I can add to it, or if um, it's, I no longer feel like I need to pray for it, if it's been answered, or it's just time to let it, let it be. Um, but yeah, I mean, in regards to, to choosing scriptures, um, I don't know if, I mean, I, I pray this one a lot in part just because, uh, again, I mentioned that song. <laughs> And just because it was the one, he was like, this is the best one. Uh, he was like, you can have the whole Bible, but the whole Bible is like here. He's very clear about that uh, Lord and God are Jesus, or it's the Trinity. Like, he was arguing with uh, other people. But, um, yeah, I don't know about exa- how to tell you exactly how to how to choose one, but I think... Ones that are, I mean, Esther shared, um, uh, we have a Monday, Monday prayer time, and she pray, prayed, um, well, you can say what you shared if you want, since you shared it. I don't need to share it, but. Yeah. I'm alone and afraid, right? Yeah, so. more elaborate than this, but kind of like the takeaway, where I was like, I don't have a brother named Esau, but I feel like um, was, I'm alone, I'm afraid, I'm unworthy, but you have said, I will be with you, and I'll make you prosper. That's the promise that God specifically made to Jacob, and I was like, oh, I can fill in that blank with what I know God has promised to me. Um, so that was sort of like a, it was like a For years, I prayed, uh, when I pray for people, I got this from a woman named Dorothy Day, uh, who was a Catholic writer in the 20s, and she said if she knew friends that were going through hard times, or struggling, more like like sadness and depression or grief, she would pray more or less like John 2, like Jesus make, brings the best wine, she would say, Lord, give them your best wine, like that is how, and so that is when I, when people that in my life are that I pray for, I pray that Jesus would give them the best wine. And I think about ways that God, you're just talking about like God's attributes, like, you know, God is light in whom there is, you know, no darkness. Like I often pray that God will shine his light into people's life. Cause I like don't, 
I, I just sometimes like don't know what <laughs> what to pray. Uh, um, but those are like some sort of scriptural patterns, or you know, Paul, especially in Ephesians, has these has these very long. Like Paul has Paul is praying for people all the time in his letters, and that sort of just gives me like what are his priorities or what are his. So sometimes those are scriptures I uh, I look to for sort of patterns. But yeah, were you going to say something? I think there's uh, there's season of life rhythms of prayer mm-hmm. that I think change. Yeah. And so I don't think that there's like a scripture. I mean, there's seasons of, of things that you look to. Um, yeah. I find the Lord's Prayer is is what I continue to go back to <laughs> and to pray for God's kingdom to come but then in, in people's lives and God break your kingdom into their life mm-hmm. and and so using the Lord's Prayer sort of on one side and then in the <laughs> next to it like naming specific people specific places mm-hmm. where people need God's bread daily bread. Yeah. Like, these are the people for that yeah. you need to show up for. And and so that there is like this structure of like who God promises himself to be and in the particular specific. Yeah. And I continue to, to yeah. go back to that because I'm distracted. Yeah. Cassian spends lots of pages walking through the Lord's Prayer. And there was um there's a um uh, he, uh, this guy Martin Luther, he would often talk about um, basically you just take a line as you pray the which is sort of, it's just sort of what you were saying. Um, you take a line, "Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name," and then you you put it in your you put one line each day in your own whatever line kind of you're prompted to. Uh, so it's like, "May your kingdom come." I want your kingdom to come. In Southboro, what are the problems that I know are in Southboro? Like, and then the next day, it's like, sort of what you were saying, but using that, both like cast. I mean, I feel like every Christian writer who writes on prayer more or less says the Lord's Prayer contains everything, <laughs> uh, and just if you stick with it, you're not going to mess up. Um, but using it and expanding on it, I think, I think C.S. Lewis <laughs> uses in his letters to Malcolm. Uh, book he uses the language of festooning, which uh, I'm not exactly sure what that means, but I think it's like uh, isn't it like jazz, like kind of riffing, kind of like, and so taking the Lord's prayer as the form and saying the lines, but putting some of it in your own words and trying to festoon it. Um, like the message. Yeah, uh, the message. Yeah. Do other people have things they want to? See? Yeah, I've talked a lot. Yeah. Um, I think. Super tactically, there's a great book, um, Face to Face, Kenneth Boa, and it just is scripture. And there are no, like, it's not a devotional. He'll give, like, little prompts or, like, confess this, pray for the world, like, things that follow, but it's basically the same structure of, like, adoration, confession, um, petition, thanksgiving, and that has been super helpful. And then I love what Sarah said about like noticing in a prayer life. I'm in full time ministry, and I caught myself only talking about ministry and like never 
Grim's dad how I despise my sister-in-law. Like, just skipping over the teeth. Didn't strike that from the right. Yeah. Speaking of what I've been drinking two years for this, very little has changed. It actually got worse. Um, so I think, like, that's been very interesting. Um, I do love to play with kids. My younger sister, when she was a believer, would thank God um, for butterflies um, and trees over a hot meal that was cooling like the grass and I would get very frustrated but you know there's some beauty in that and then um, I think praying with people but honestly I think Jesus just wants us to keep going to him um, and then another thing that I was noticing um, how I don't really like to talk about my emotions it makes me uncomfortable and I don't like it um, but I really struggle with depression so it's hard, um, but reading Hannah's prayers, speaking of, like, looking at other people's Hannah, uh, prayers, um, she's, like, super bummed out that she, like, cannot have a son, and then I was like, oh, okay, so it's, like, kind of biblical just to say, like, God, I'm, like, really mad about this, yeah. um, because I thought it was just so unholy to complain or say how you were actually doing, if you didn't care, and, um... So that has been really helpful. Um, and then I have some like trigger prayer type things by my house. Um, I have a Ziploc bag next to the toilet with Christmas cards and missionaries that I know and try to do that. Um, yeah, I just have like, I some too much for it. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> You're already deep in the process of the But like kind of like some, some triggers on the outside. I'm very used to thinking similar thoughts in the same place. Mm-hmm. So, that's all conditioned on. Yeah. And conditioned. So. Which just makes me think, like, when, you know, Jesus says, uh, like, when you pray, basically go into your closet. You know, go into your... I, I have found having a place to pray, like, there's something about it. It's almost like I show up. I think this is... So when Peter was talking about the beauty of uh, some church architecture, like you walk into it and you're like, oh, this room is for prayer. Or this, like, and it it sort of helps you. It nudges you. It obviously doesn't, like, make you. But there are, I, I find in our own house, there are spots where it's significantly easier for me to pray than in other places. I don't think it's like a magic place or like a, or something like that, but it, it's been a place that's been prayed in, <laughs> uh, and it, it sort of helps cue me. I think G- Jesus is on like is onto something there. Like I don't think he's just telling you to go be where no one can see you, but there is something about a space that um, I mean, like this is a room that is made for certain activities, and it's not made for others. Just the nature of this incredible woodwork uh, that's here. Yeah, were you going to say something, Don? Or? Well, just just another aspect, and this is this is me describing the benefits of something I hardly ever do. Um, but uh, the thinking about how important um, thankfulness is, mm. uh, both as just an acknowledgement of the truth, what God has done, yeah. and um, in a way where it's supposed to live, something mm. that's supposed to shape us. Yeah. Really, I, I just think that. It's really helpful. The times when I have done this in my life has been helpful to 
to write down our prayer, similar to how you do in a fairly methodical way, um, in order to refer back to and actually notice when God has answered your prayers. Because uh, it's unbelievable, particularly those of us who are sort of <clears throat> tend towards the, the knee-jerk prayers, it's just the, the, the prayer for the present crisis, for the anxiety that's, that's in my mind right now. And sometimes that's all I get to, you know. Well, <clears throat> um, I can live that way and never actually acknowledge the things that God has done in direct response to my prayer. <laughs> you know, I don't have time to think about that. That was yesterday's crisis. Now I'm on to this one. Well, that's, that's how to be ungrateful. That's like a recipe for ingratitude. Um, and, you know, to actually acknowledge and name. And, and um, this, this, was, this was something... I asked for it. It might not have been answered the way I anticipated or hoped, but God heard mm-hmm. and responded. And, um, that's going to shape us. And I, I don't, you know, it's, it's, it sounds like a cliche to keep a gratitude journal, but it's, it's, uh, it's actually pretty smart. Mm. It's just because you, you read that it's like good for your health and all the pop mm-hmm. psychology journals doesn't mean that it's bad. That's your right? But I think I think like there's something about gratitude that uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It like self potentially like self perpetuates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like once you start realizing, oh, like I'm thankful for this. Well, then like there's something about, and not that I am always in a like gratitude zone or um, frequency, but yeah, you be I don't know, like even. Like I was saying, like I was really tired of like no, like we live by this highway, which we can always hear in our bedroom, and like I have children that are talking, and I like I'm just thinking back to like last year when I made that comment, like I'm so full of words, I don't, I'm so full of noise. I was waking up in the middle of the night and not being able to go back to sleep, and I was so frustrated with it. And then one night I was like, when I woke up, I was like, it's totally quiet. Like this is all I've been wanting. And like, actually, God is giving me this right now, yeah. and I fell back asleep. <laughs> it was, but it was like it was so like it was like uh, I don't know. There's a part of me, like in a kind way, God was like, "Hello, like, I see you. Like I see what you need at this moment." And um, yeah, it was. I just yeah. There's something about gratitude. I think that is really, really powerful. And then you just see more. More things, even in other people's lives, and uh, yeah. So yeah. So one of the practices I've done of like to remember and not forget this idea, like remember to not forget, is to set an alarm for a year. Like I write mm-hmm. it in my calendar mm-hmm. to remind me in a year, mm-hmm. so that a year later, it's like on this day. Yeah, this that's day. really cool. Mm-hmm. I like that and idea. It's so helpful. Yeah, that's really good. A year ago, this happened. Yeah. And, I mean, oftentimes it has to do with students and money, because you know, yeah. my anxieties are the most acute, looking in the mirror for people and money. Yeah. Like, oh, a year ago, this happened. Yeah. Like, God did not do this. Um, Mm. So that's been a really helpful practice. Yeah.
I just thought of one more thing. Uh, you were just talking about with kids. We haven't done this as much with our kids, but we did this a bunch. We used to teach a Sunday school class, and we would do a time um, where, like, what's what's been hard this week? What are you holding on to? And we would have the kids, like, hold their hands like this. What are you holding on to? And then we would say, I mean, these were, we had them first, second, third, fourth, fifth. Um, so we got to know them. Um, and I was like, what are you holding on to this week? And that you don't want to hold. That, like, is a bad thing someone said about you that's not true. Maybe something you said about yourself that's not true. An embarrassment, a failure, a hurt, whatever. And then what is it, like, can you let go of that? Um, and then what, if, as you let go of it, how do we, we turn our hands over and ask God to give us something else, to give us the truth about who we are, the truth about this other person, to give us forgiveness if we've done something wrong. There's, and I found there's something significant about the kids catch on to that I, maybe it's sort of like going through school and whatnot, like, I can be, everything can be so cerebral for me, but there's something very helpful about being in my being in our bodies and, and sort of praying with movement. And there's so much in the Bible about standing or laying prostrate or lifting hands or, or looking up. Like there's so much body stuff. So anyway, that was one of the prayer things that we taught kids. Anyway, I can stop there unless anyone else has anything. We've been We've been going for a while here. Um, so, thank you. all right. Thank you all. Yeah.